If you're new to Hope, you may not know that three years ago we launched a campus out at Holly Springs High School that meets there every Sunday morning. And last year, uh, this same time, this week, we launched a, a campus out to West Cary that meets at Salem Middle School. And they're celebrating Holly Springs, their three-year anniversary, West Cary, their one-year anniversary. And it's so cool because we're going to have over 2,000 people this morning at other campuses uh, celebrating and worshiping and, and, and watching me. We call it iMic, watching me on video today. And uh, so we want to give a shout out to those guys to let them know how we appreciate what they're doing, reaching and impacting their community, helping us reach the triangle and change the world. So there's some great things going on at those campuses. Now, we're in this series we're calling The Great Paradox. I want to begin this weekend by just asking you a question. It's a simple question. By a show of hands, how many of you want to be happy? All right? Looking around, I'd say that's most of you. Uh, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, the word of the week for you is therapy. Therapy, right? Because all of us should want to be happy, okay? It's just kind of the way we're made. It's in our DNA. It's the way we're wired. In fact, God made us to be happy. I think that's why Jesus, maybe the very first recorded message he ever gave, he, he began with the word blessed, which we now know because we're all Greek scholars. The word is makarios, and it's the word happy. Jesus began by saying happy. And I think it's because Jesus realized happiness is something we really, really desire. It's something we crave. It's something that we really, really want in our lives. Jesus knew that as human beings, happiness is something we're going to spend a great deal of time, a great deal of resources, a, a great deal of energy pursuing. Because the bottom line is we want to be happy. Now this week we come to our third beatitude and we're learning in this series how to be happy and we're discovering happiness in some of the strangest places. And we're calling it a paradox because, hey, these aren't the places that the world, that society, that culture is telling us to find ha happiness. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how to find true happiness happiness by the way once again I'm reminded this weekend of how beautifully these these beatitudes flow together the very first beatitude we looked at a few weeks ago Jesus said blessed are the poor and we learned in that series that Jesus basically said you're gonna be happy when you get to the place in your life where you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt before God you have nothing to offer God you have nothing he wants you have nothing he needs you have nothing in your spiritual account that is going to impress God you are hopelessly lost you are hopelessly doomed without God in your life you've got to get there and then when you get there as we saw last week you're gonna mourn you're gonna mourn over your separation from God you're gonna mourn over your sin that separates you from God you're gonna mourn over your condition before God you're gonna to begin to see yourself as God sees you and when you begin to see yourself as God sees you you cannot help but become meek because as we said pride cannot live pride cannot exist in the presence of God so now this week we're looking at blessed are the meek and let me just say this beatitude it's, it's also a paradox it's, it's a statement that contains conflicting ideas I mean think about it Matthew 5 5 says this blessed or happy are the meek for they will inherit the earth and, and we read that and it says hey you know they're gonna rule the world they're gonna rule the world and we think well that's a paradox that makes no sense to us whatsoever the meek are going to rule the world that's not true nice guys don't rule the world nice guys finish last right I mean if you're meek People are going to walk all over you. If you're meek, people are going to take advantage of you. You're never going to be in a position to rule the world. Well, let's, let's unpack this beatitude. And let's see this weekend if we can discover some things about meekness. And let's see if we can figure out how meekness might actually lead to happiness in our lives. I'm going to do this by just answering three questions. The first one is this. What is 
weak, what is meekness. And, and let me just begin by telling you what it's not. It's not weakness. And I tell you that because I think typically when we think of someone who's meek, we think of someone who's a wimp, okay? We think of someone who's maybe a mama's boy. You know, we think of someone maybe who's a little bit of a wuss. I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm trying to get our video team to be kinder and gentler. Sometimes they just throw stuff like that in there, right? Understand, that's weakness. And weakness is actually the exact opposite of meekness. Meekness, this word in the Greek, simply means this, strength under control. That's what it means to be meek, strength under control. This was a word that was used in the first century to refer to a bit that was placed in the horse's mouth, especially when the horse was like a wild stallion, and it was placed in the horse's mouth so that that horse could become totally submissive, totally obedient to the master. It didn't limit the, the, the horse's power, didn't limit the horse's strength. It just channeled that strength, that power, in the right direction. It was strength and power under control. That's what the word meekness means. A lot of examples in the Bible of meekness. I mean, obviously, Jesus would be the ultimate example of meekness. But, you know, you can't get into the Bible. You get into the book of Genesis. Uh, quickly, you come across one of our favorite characters in the Bible. His name is Joseph. And you may remember the story of Joseph. He was one of 12 brothers. Remember that? And he was daddy's favorite. He was daddy's pet. And because of that, naturally, the other 11 brothers hated him. And it finally culminated in, in daddy giving Joseph this beautiful coat of many colors, you know, that he probably bought from Nordstrom. And even if you haven't read the story, you've probably seen the Broadway musical. So you, you know what this is all about. Well, that just sent the brothers over the edge. Uh, they, they, they staged Joseph's death. They sell him into slavery. Through a series of events, he ends up in Egypt, a servant, a slave, then in prison. Then he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He has incredible integrity. The Pharaoh brings him out of, uh, out of prison and promotes him to the place, the role of prime minister. The most powerful country in the world at that time, Joseph is the prime minister. Now, through a series of events, back home in Goshen, there's a famine in the land. Joseph's dad hears that there's actually food in Egypt. They don't realize there's food in Egypt because of Joseph, right? So Joseph's dad sends the brothers to Egypt to see if they can get some food. They wind up standing before Joseph. They don't recognize him. It's been 22 years. And there's that great epic moment where Joseph says, Surprise! It's me! I'm Joseph! And they're like, this could be bad. This could be bad. Because they realize that Joseph, their brother, having all the power, all the authority that comes from being the prime minister of Egypt, has the ability... Maybe best case scenario, to put them in prison for the rest of their life. Worst case scenario, he could have them killed on the spot for what they did to him. But if you are familiar with the story, you know that Joseph made the decision to show mercy and forgive them. In fact, there's that great verse. You ought to write this down, Genesis 50-20. I call it the 50-20 principle. This is what Joseph says. I'm not mad. I'm not going to hold on to a grudge. This is why. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God has had his hand in this situation from day one. Yeah, you meant to harm me. God meant to prosper me. That is strength. That is power under control. Well, you go to Genesis to, to Exodus and we meet Moses. And Moses was meek. In fact, you look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It says, now Moses was a very humble man. That's the same word in the Hebrew. He was a meek man, more meek, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now understand, that was said of Moses when he was 80 years old, that could not have been said of Moses when he was 40 years old. 
Because when Moses was 40 years old, you remember, he beat an Egyptian to death with his bare hands. So he had strength, he had power, it just wasn't under control. So God says, if I'm going to use you greatly, if you're ever going to be the deliverer of my people, we've got to help you become meek. So from the age of 40 to 80, Moses chased sheep around the backside of the Sinai Desert, you know, tending sheep, trying to find a little patch of grass, trying to find a little bit of water, working for his father-in-law for 40 years. I tell you, if working for your father-in-law doesn't make you meek, you cannot become meek. You know what I'm saying? But Moses became meek. In fact, he became more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. How about David? talk about power and strength as a kid remember David was watching his father's sheep a lion came to attack one day he killed the lion another day a bear came to attack the sheep he killed the bear with his bare hands you knew I had to say that right uh, when he was 17 17 he took on Goliath and killed Goliath incredible strength incredible power David is a great warrior he's fighting for King Saul one day he goes to King Saul and he says I've spotted one of your daughters I'm kind of head over heels for her I want to marry your daughter Saul says fine you can marry her but first you have to go out and kill a hundred Philistines the Philistines they were the hated enemies of the Israelites you got to kill a hundred Philistines and bring me the proof who knows what the proof was just raise your hand ooh that's all I'm gonna say you ought to read the Bible go check it out it's some crazy stuff in the Bible David didn't just kill a hundred Philistines, he went out and killed 200 just to make sure it was enough. Incredible strength and power under control. Saul dies, David becomes king. Years after he's on the throne, his own son Absalom runs him off the throne. David was an incredible warrior, a great king, an absolutely horrible dad, right? His own son runs him out of Jerusalem. As he's leaving Jerusalem, think about this, he's walking down this road and there's a guy named Shimei. Shimei's running on the bank, kind of alongside David. And as he's running alongside David, he's cursing David. He's throwing rocks at David. It's kind of a funny scene, actually. Shimei is like the Ernest T. Bass of the Old Testament. And if you don't know who Ernest T. Bass is, shame on you. Go Google it. Not right now while I'm preaching, okay? But he's throwing rocks. He's cursing David. Now, David is an incredible warrior. David could have run up on that hill, grabbed Shimei, and slit his throat so fast, Shimei wouldn't have known it till he sneezed. You know what I'm talking about? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. This is what David says. He, he's learned some lessons. He's learned them the hard way. So now he has the attitude that says, maybe I deserve what he's saying. Maybe I deserve it. And if I don't deserve it, I'll let God deal with him. That's strength under control, and that is meekness. Now, second, what produces meekness? Well, let me first tell you where meekness doesn't come from. You're not born meek. And I say that because we have a tendency to describe a lot of people who are born with a certain personality as being meek. For example, if they're quiet, mellow, shy, withdrawn, we'll say, that is a meek person. That is a meek individual. They're not meek, they're introverts. Meekness means strength under control, and none of us are born with strength under control. What makes it even more complicated, or not only are we not born with meekness, we can't produce meekness. And the reason we can't produce meekness is meekness is a characteristic. Meekness is an attribute of God. I mean, you want to talk about strength and power under control, that's God, right? And the only way that we can ever attain, ever possess an attribute of God is through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, let me show you a verse so you'll understand what I'm talking about. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. He says this in Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the result of the Spirit working in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That's the word for meekness. 
By the way, just so you know, the word for meek is the word praus, the Greek word praus. It only appears four times in the New Testament. This is one of those times. Goodness, faithfulness, praus, or meekness. Sometimes, of the four, sometimes it's translated meek or meekness. Sometimes it's translated gentle or gentleness. In fact, let me show you two of the other four times that this word is used. Obviously, Matthew 5, 5, the passage that we're looking at this weekend, blessed are the meek, blessed are the praus. So that's the second time it's used. You go over a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, that familiar verse where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, if you're burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now look what it says, for I am praus. There's our word. I am gentle and I am humble. By the way, this is, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus gives us some actual insight to what he is like uh, emotionally, his emotional makeup. Jesus says, if you really are curious, if you want to know what I'm really like, I am praus, I am meek, and I am humble. Now, why is that significant? Because those of us who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, as his disciples, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we're in the process of being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we're on this spiritual journey walking with Christ, every day we ought to be getting a more and more, a little bit more like Jesus Christ in our character and how we handle life. What, how we see life. We're becoming in this process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now this is a prophecy that will not be fulfilled until we're sanctified when we get to heaven. Then we will be like Christ. But while we're here on this earth, we're trying to get our day-to-day -day experience to match our position of who we are in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is meek, one of the goals as followers of Jesus Christ should be, I want to be meek. Now here's the problem. You can't just walk out of here today and say, I am going to be meek. You can't just pray, God, make me meek. I've made the decision to be meek. I'm going to be meek. To make it even more difficult, we can't offer you four classes and say, if you'll take these four classes or you'll go through this small group study, you will be meek. Remember what we read in Galatians chapter 5. Meekness is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So the only way that you and I can become meek is by submitting ourselves on a daily basis to the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's this whole idea, and you've read about it, especially in the book of Romans, this idea of walking in the Spirit. Now, a couple of years ago, I did an entire series on this. It's called Walk This Way. And if you weren't here, I would really encourage you. Uh, go to gethope.net, go to the messages, go to the archives. You can listen to that six-week series. But this is what we learned in that series. If you will walk in the Spirit, you will allow the Holy Spirit to control your actions and your reactions, you can become meek. And Jesus says, if you can become meek, you can become happy. Now, that's where it comes from. Here's the next question. How is it produced? How, I mean, that, I mean that it, that's how it's produced. But what does meekness produce? The Holy Spirit produces it in us. Once it's in us, what does it produce? And the simple answer, the short answer is a Christ-like character. When we are meek, we're more like Jesus Christ. But I want to give you some specific examples of what your life is going to begin to look like once you become meek. And then you can begin to measure where you are on this journey. Here's the first one. When you're meek, you're going to be more understanding and you're going to be a lot less demanding in life. More understanding, less demanding. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. In other words, when you, when you start becoming meek, naturally, you're going to begin to put other people above yourself. 
Now let me just say something here. This is why, and you may wonder, you may, you may blame it on business and all kinds of things, but this is why many of you don't serve. You haven't yet become meek to where you see the needs of others as more important than your own needs. This would be why some of you don't give. It's not because you don't have the money. A lot of people give that it doesn't make financial sense. But you haven't gotten to the point of meekness where you see the needs of others as more important than your own needs. Now let me just say something about this idea of meekness. You cannot be meek and at the same time be a prima donna. You cannot be meek and be a diva. You cannot be meek and have the world revolve around you. Meekness means that you start putting the needs of others above your own needs. By the way, here's the best way I know to tell whether you're meek or not. This is the best test I know. How do you treat people in the service industry? How do you treat people who provide a service to you? You go to Walmart this week, the cashier, she rings up your items wrong. How do you treat her? You get on an airplane, you're taking a trip, you push your call button, the stewardess doesn't make it there in three-tenths of a second. How do you treat her, you know? You go to the Red Robin today, and your waitress brings your cheeseburger, not with cheddar, but with provolone. How do you treat her? You go to the car wash, you pay $12, they leave spots on your windshield. How do you treat them? You come to church, and you drive into the parking lot, and there are these volunteers trying to help it not be mass chaos. And they tell you, you have to go in a certain direction to park. How do you treat them? I hear the strangest stories. By the way, these people who volunteer in the parking lot, many of them get here an hour and a half before we do and leave an hour after we're gone. They were out there last night in that rain, in that thunder and lightning, making sure everybody can get in so we can have church. You wouldn't believe the stories they tell me. You wouldn't believe the words that they are called. The single uh, finger salutes. I think you know what I'm saying, that they seem to get on a regular basis. You go anywhere else, you go to the state game, they say park there, where do you park? You park there. You come to church, I don't want to park there. Roll the wind back up, you know, move on. It's just amazing. How do you treat people? Now, I'll tell you when I really, really realized this. I told you last week I had an illustrious career in, in, the, in the grocery industry. And uh, when I first moved here from California, two days after I got here, I realized I don't have a job, I don't have an income, I don't have a church, I don't have anybody to preach to, I gotta find something to do while I try to get a church going. And so I walked around the corner, there's a food line, I walked in, I said, can I get a job at food line? They said, sure, and, and, uh, and, and so they gave me a job. And uh, there's a couple of things, one of the things I discovered about working at food line is this, it is a sucky job. <laughs> and if, if you work there, my heart goes out to you, and it's not the job. I mean, I always wanted a career in the grocery industry. I would, uh, industry. I would have been very, very fine with that. It's not the job. It's the way people treat you when you have that job. Whether you're a cashier, whether you're bagging groceries, whether you're taking groceries out to someone's car in the rain for them. I mean, people half your age, it's how they treat you. In their mind, you're just hired help. Now, I'm, I'm looking back on this. I'm older and I'm wiser now. And I know now why people treat hired help so rudely. It's this. It's because so few of us actually control our lives and so when we have the opportunity to yank someone else's chain we're not going to pass up that opportunity and it's usually someone that we we perceive as being beneath us someone that serves us someone who waits on us but I'm telling you when you're meek that's going to begin to change now let me just tell you how this all plays out a lot of you are going to go out to eat after church I don't know what it is about Christians going to church 
but they have to eat afterwards. A lot of us, we're going to go straight to a restaurant. When we, some of you are going to go to Bojangles. Some of you are going to go to Lucky 32. Some of you are going to belly up to the trough at the Golden Corral, but you're going to probably go, go eat somewhere. Wherever you go, think about this. Somebody's going to be waiting on you. And I cannot explain for the life of me how they know it, but they're going to know that you came from church. There's just something about us after church. They know it. I mean, they know it. They can spot it. I don't know if it's the sour look, the frown, the stress. I don't know if we smell differently because we just went to church. But somehow they know you went to church and they're going to assume that you are a Christian. Now, I'm going to tell you what I've learned from people who are in the waitstaff industry. They do not want to wait on you. I cannot tell you how many waitstaff have told me we hate when we see that we have the Sunday shift because we know predominantly we're going to have to wait on Christians. And I say, well, what's the big deal about waiting on Christians? They say they're rude, they're impatient, and more than anyone else, they jip us, they short us on our tip. So if you go out of here today and you go to eat somewhere, and if you're rude and if you're impatient and you decide you're going to short them on their tip, you're just going to play right into what they already believe, which is Christians are jerks. And let's be honest, if we're jerks, it reflects very negatively on the cause of Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a suggestion here. And this is something I've learned. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Let me tell you how that works. When I go out to eat, and I mean I, I, I do this, is maybe the one thing in my life I do right. If someone's waiting on me, I don't care how bad she is. Say if it's a single girl, a young girl. This is what I tell myself. She could be a single mom, and she could have a sick child who's at home today, and she would much rather be at home with her sick child, but she can't afford not to work, so she's here. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Or maybe I'll, sometimes, if someone a little older, I'll say, maybe they just lost their job. They've never been in the wait. They've never been a server in their life. They're trying to learn this. It's not easy. It's difficult work. Maybe this is their first week. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Or sometimes I'll say, they're just stupid but you can't fix stupid right it is what it is they're doing the best they can you give them the benefit of the doubt and I just tip them anyway right my point is when you're meek you're just going to become more understanding and you're going to become less demanding you're going to quit being a diva there are some people I go to dinner with and it embarrasses me to death I'm like, please don't recognize me as the pastor of Hope Community Church, right? Because the way they talk to people, and I won't even let them pay the bill because I know how they're going to tip, right? Don't be like that. Here's the second one. When you're meek, you're going to be more forgiving and less judgmental. I mean, think about this. Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. What's that proverb talking about? It's talking about when somebody does something wrong, they blow it, and you never let it go. You just keep bringing it up. You just keep reminding them of how they blew it. You know, a lot of us, if we're honest, we have that I told you so attitude, right? I mean, how many of us, let's be honest, you know, we love to say things like, I told you. I told you. I told you if you went to Carolina, you were going to end up driving a Prius. And now you're driving it. I told you that was going to happen. I told you, you know. I told you if you married that loser... Your life was going to be a mess. I told you. You bring it up every chance you get. You just love the twist that night. You know why we do that? Gives us a sense of power, a sense of control, a sense that we're smarter, we're better, we're superior to you. But when you're meek, you let it go. 
you learn to take the high roads. You don't hold on to things. You forgive easier. I came across a great illustration of this Booker T. Washington, great African-American educator. He really understood this concept of meekness. If you remember school, 1881, he founded the Tuskegee Institute. It was established to teach and train African-Americans certain trades and job skills. Members are coming out of slavery. One of the first schools of its kind in the South. One day, Booker T. Washington, he's walking down the street. A white lady sees him. What does she assume? He's a slave. And she says, sir, I, I want to hire you to chop and to stack my wood for me. Booker T. Washington, without saying a word, took off his jacket, chopped the lady's wood, never mentioned who he was. A few days later, the lady somehow discovered that it was Booker T. Washington. So she goes to his office. She is incredibly embarrassed. She, she apologizes over and over and over again. And this is one of those moments. We love it when it comes to this because this is when we get to unload on people. This is when we really get to vent our anger. This is when we get to put them in their place. You know what I'm saying? This is what Booker T. Washington said. Don't worry about it. I enjoy doing favors for my friends. That's meekness. That's strength and power under control. That's a person who understands forgiveness, the power of letting things go. Understand, this is what God wants to see reproduced in us. The ability to forgive the offense, the refuse to judge. It's a sign of meekness. Here's the third one. When you're meek, you're going to become more teachable and less unreachable. James 1.19 says this. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone, I think that means everyone, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And I think what James is saying there, when you're meek, you're going to actually listen to other people when they correct you. Or when they attempt to give you constructive criticism. And the honest, I mean, let's be honest, in our own human flesh, that's just never easy. Uh, one weekend, I was driving home with Laura after the four services. And, uh, and I asked her as we were driving, I said, hey, what did you think of the message? Now, what she didn't realize is I didn't really want a response. I was just trying to be a good husband, maybe have a little conversation, be polite. Maybe I was just fishing for a compliment. But, I, you know, she had the audacity to give me a couple of critiques of how she would have handled it differently. And I can remember going down US 1, white knuckling the steering wheel. And this is what I'm thinking, what does she know? She's never had to sit up there and do what I do on the weekends. She's never had to stare into those angry, hostile faces that I have to stare into every weekend. She, ha, you know what I discovered? This is, this, is, this is the truth. Whenever Laura decides to critique me in any area of my life, She's not 98% right. She's not 99% right. I am telling you, she is right 100% of the time. She's always right. It's never easy to hear, but she's always right. So in this journey of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and you know, we have good days and we have bad days, but when we're meek, we're, we're teachable. Let me just ask you this question. Wherever you hang out, at work, on your campus, in your neighborhood, at the country club, you know. If someone went up and asked someone to describe you, would they say, oh, they are so teachable? Or would they say, you ever hung around them? They're a know-it-all. They're a know-it-all. This is one thing I've learned about know-it-alls. 
You may know it all, but you don't have any friends at all, right? And the reason is nobody likes a know-it-all. Nobody wants to hang around a know-it-all. In fact, you know where I'm hearing more and more about this? Know-it-all's Facebook. I don't go on Facebook. I wouldn't know how to get on Facebook if you gave me a million dollars. But I have my staff who's on Facebook, and they said, you cannot believe how Christians talk, how rude people are, how obnoxious people are to other people on Facebook, how unteachable. Maybe you're not meek. A meek, gentle person is teachable, quick to listen, and people love being around someone that's teachable. It's just winsome. You're just drawn to them. Here's the fourth one. When you're meek, you're going to have more peace in your life and less panic. More peace and less panic. Let's go back to Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed or happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, and we think, yeah, we're me. We're going to reign with Jesus. We're going to reign. You got a little victory dance going there. But let me, t- let me tell you what this actually says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the dirt. That's the Greek word there. Dirt. Well, now it doesn't sound like the payoff's all that great. I'm going to be meek, and my payoff is I get dirt. This goes all the way back to the Hebrew people. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt 430 years. God raised up Moses. He delivered them. And when he delivered them, this is what God said to them. Go to the promised land. It's just a seven-day journey. Took them 40 years. But go there, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to inherit it. So basically what God was saying is this. If you will trust me, implied is, you guys have been slaves. You don't know anything about fighting battles. I'm going to fight your battles for you. And then second, I am going to give you the land. This land is going to become your inheritance. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because an inheritance is something you don't earn. An inheritance is something that just kind of falls into your lap because you're related to the right person. So I think this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are you when you're meek, when you can get there, because once you get there, I will take care of your enemies. I will win your battles for you and your inheritance, your future is secure. Let me show you an interesting verse. And maybe you've never seen it before. Psalm 37, verse 7. You wonder where did Jesus get his uh, material for speaking? Notice this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. In other words, don't worry, don't get angry, and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off. In other words, God says, I'll take care of the evil ones. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. You're going to get something you don't deserve. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Look at this. But the meek will inherit the dirt. There it is again, the land, and enjoy great peace. See the word great there? It means more than enough. So really Jesus is saying the meek will inherit the dirt and enjoy more than enough peace. Let me just ask you a question. I have to raise your hand. Anybody here have more than enough peace? Really? Anybody here say, God, please, please, I pray God, please bring some chaos and turmoil into my life because I just got too much peace. I got so much peace I can't hardly stand it. Take some of this peace away. No, nobody's that. But this verse tells us meek people not only have peace, they have great peace. They have more peace than they need. Now, why is that? Because a meek person gets to the point in life where they finally understand 
that God is in control. That God is fighting the battle for us. And because God is fighting the battle for us, we don't have to be all stressed out. We don't have to worry and we can be at peace. That's why it even says up at verse 8, when, when you're meek, you can refrain from anger. You can refrain from anger. I mean, think about it. Why do we blow up? You ever just exploded on somebody? We all have. Why do we have those outbursts of anger? I'll tell you why we have them. It's because we don't really believe that God is in control of our lives. And when we don't believe that God is in control of our lives, we believe that we have to inject ourselves into the situation and we have to control, we have to manipulate the situation, we have to defend our rights, we have to take a stand for what is right. But all that shifts, all of that changes when you realize that God is in control of your life, you're not. You can't control anything. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your boss. You can't control your neighbors and your co-workers. They're God's problems, right? And what we read in the psalm is when you get to that point where you realize that God is in control, you're going to be able, according to verse 8, refrain from anger. You know what that means? You will not be involved in any more knockdown, drag-out fights. Do you know why? Well, it takes two to fight. It takes two to argue. Look what it says in Proverbs 15. One, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You can't do that if you're not meek. You know what meekness will do? Meekness will allow you to sit there calmly when you're being attacked. Do you know why? Because when you're meek, you have strength and power under control. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to fight back. You don't have to give them a piece of your mind. God is in control. 50-20. Hey, they mean it for evil. God means it for good. He's in control. Let me just ask you this in closing. Are you in the middle of a relational storm this weekend? I mean, maybe it's with your spouse. You know, maybe all the way to church this morning. Was, until you drive in the church parking lot. Then something about the church parking lot. Oh, we're great. We love each other. We're the godliest couple in the world. All the way home today, it's going to be. You know, and you don't understand it. You don't get it. I mean, when you got married, everybody said, look at him. Match made in heaven. What they didn't tell you is so is thunder and lightning. You know, that, that's a match made in heaven, right? So you're in a relational storm with your spouse. Maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe, maybe it's with a friend or you're so dreading going to work tomorrow because it's a co-worker or maybe it's a neighbor that you're going to see this afternoon. When you're, in a, when you're in a relational storm, they're inevitable because humans are in relationships and we're not perfect. But when you're in a relational storm and, and you're meek, it just kind of figuratively... It allows you just to sleep in the bottom of the boat. You know what will happen when you're meek? You will not be involved in any more out-of-control fights. Do you know why? Because it only takes one meek person to stop a fight, to take the high road, to walk away. Let me show you one more verse in closing. Remember I said the word praus, meek, appears only four times in the Bible. Galatians 5, Matthew 5, Matthew 11. The fourth one is in Matthew 21, verse 5. It says this. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, see, your king comes to you, gentle, praus, meek, and riding on a donkey. This is when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Remember that triumphal entry, the palm branches? just a few days before he's going to be nailed to the cross, meek, 
gentle on the back of a donkey. Talk about the picture of meekness. What did Isaiah say? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't even open his mouth. I mean, you want to talk about strength under control. Now, if your desire is to become like Jesus, you're going to have to become meek. And when you get there, and again, it's the paradox, you'll be happy. You say, Mike, how's that, how's that possible? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you realize God is in control. God is in control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your simple, practical truth. And once again, we're reminded of just how hopeless we are without you who will defend us and fight our battles and secure our inheritance with you. We need you. We're desperate for you. And Father, my prayer is in this series that we, we realize how hopelessly doomed we are without you not just at the moment of salvation but in the whole process of spiritual transformation we couldn't save ourselves I don't know why in the world we ever get to the point where we think we can change ourselves so we just call on you to do in us through your spirit what we could never do and make us pliable Make us willing to submit to you and to your control in our lives. And may we become meek. And through meekness, may we discover happiness. In your name we pray.